Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Thomas Steffens, CEO of the classical music streaming service Prime Phonic. But first of all, where do you think music is going to be in 10 years? Well, venture capitalist Vinod Kosi from Creative Destruction Labs thinks he knows. And what he predicts is that we won't be listening to songs. We're going to be listening to something he calls custom song equivalents. So in other words, there's going to be artificial intelligence that is going to generate a specific song for each person every time we listen. So in other words, we're getting unique music every single time. He thinks this because of the rise of mood and activity-based playlists on Spotify and just about all the other services. What's going on is that we're dialing these up more and more, and a lot of the material is already generated by artificial intelligence. So he predicts that there's going to be a lot more of that in 10 years. Not sure if that's the case or not. This is actually a really good thing for the streaming services, and I think they'd really like to see this. The reason why is it ups their margins. They don't have to pay artists or labels or songwriters, so they can just get an algorithm to dial all this stuff up. So we will see how popular that becomes in 10 years. I have my doubts, but venture capitalists seem to know what they're doing when it comes to technology especially. And we'll see if Vinod Koshi actually can see into the future. Now here's something else. Rolling Stone magazine has just launched its own charts. And the way it did that was it acquired Buzzangle Music, which was a data acquisition company, a measurement company. It's now called Alpha Data. And they've been collecting data for a long time, and now they're putting it into charts. The interesting thing and what makes this different from Billboard is these charts are auto-populated in almost real time. So in other words, you can look at it now and it might be different in five minutes because it's actually looking at streams, sales, and whatever else they're using. So there's five charts, the top 100 songs and the top 200 albums. And these are generated by combination of sales and streaming. Then they have the artist 500 chart, which is strictly based on streams. Then there's a trending 25, and this is just the songs that had the greatest traction of the week. And finally, the Breakthrough 25, which is artists that are appearing on the charts for the first time. The reason why Rolling Stone is doing this is because it wants to go up against Billboard. And Billboard, of course, is getting lots and lots of flack about its charts and about how late they are and about how maybe they're not really representative of what's going on out there. As I said last week, Billboard now has two new charts, a producer's chart and a songwriter's chart, which it never had before. That being said, these charts are weekly and Rolling Stones are daily. So it should be interesting to see exactly how this works in the future. But I think that Rolling Stone is really on to something. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com 
To learn more, now do you have ringing in your ears tinnitus? I have it. I've had it for a long time. I don't even notice it anymore. As a matter of fact, as I'm doing this, it's raging in my left ear. That being said, I can pretty much block it out, but a lot of people can't. It turns out there are more than 500 million people that suffer from tinnitus worldwide. That's an amazing figure. I never thought that that many people would actually be affected. And up until now, scientists really couldn't identify the cause. But a new study by PLOS Biology thinks that it found the reason. And that would be because of brain inflammation. Yeah, your brain is slightly inflamed And as a result, you get tinnitus. How did they find out? Well, they actually had a study with mice, and they repressed the tinnitus with medication. And you're probably thinking the same thing I was thinking. Wait a second. How do you know that mice have tinnitus? Well, they tested them with something called gap detection. And what they did is they played a series of tones, and then they stopped them. And they could tell by how the mice react, whether they're noticing these tones or these gaps. Yeah, I know. I questioned it as well. But that being said, it's a scientific study and it seems to be done fairly well. And hopefully they're on to something. It would be nice if we could just take some medication that would target the area of the brain that's inflamed and that nasty tinnitus tone would go away. So here's the hoping that that happens soon. Here's the hoping that mice actually have tinnitus. Here's something else. If you run Pro Tools, which computer do you use? Well, Pro Tools expert did a study, and they looked at the difference between five years ago and now and what people are using. And they found, not surprisingly, that more people use Macs than PCs by more than two to one. That being said, the type of Macs were very interesting. Believe it or not, most people still use the old cheese grater style Mac Pros, even though they were discontinued in 2013. In fact, the number of people that use them have increased over five years. So in other words, people are actively seeking these old machines out. That kind of blew my mind. Next came the MacBook Pro, and it just goes to show you that now portable computers, laptop computers, are pretty powerful and are very useful when it comes to even a big Pro Tools session. Next came the later version of the Mac Pro, commonly known as the trash can. And these are for people that generally need Thunderbolt for one reason or another because you don't have Thunderbolt on the old cheese grater Macs. After that came iMacs, which were very popular. That's what I'm using right now, my Pro Tools rig. I've been using it for quite a while. Actually, this is my second iMac. A straight iMac, not an iMac Pro. Kind of beefed up, though. That being said, it runs fine on hundreds of tracks, so why not use it? After that comes specialist desktop computers. So, in other words, these are purposely made just for digital audio workstations. Windows off-the-shelf computers come after that. And finally, the Mac Mini. And more and more people are using the Mac Mini, especially the latest one, because it's quite powerful. So I think we might see more of that penetrating 
the music business and especially the audio business where people are using Pro Tools. What are you using on your Pro Tools rig? My guest today is CEO of Primephonic, Thomas Steffens. Primephonic is a music streaming service dedicated to keeping classical music alive and accessible through the tech revolution. Most streaming networks are geared towards modern pop music and don't serve classical well. It's difficult to find what you want, and labels, conductors, and orchestras aren't paid much since the piece runs far longer than the average pop or rock song. Primephonic uses a pay-per-second model instead of a per-stream way that Spotify and most other streaming networks use. During the interview, we spoke about the three types of classical music fans, how a recommendation algorithm doesn't work for the classical genre, differentiating between different versions of a work, Primephonic's unique royalty structure, and much more. I spoke with Thomas via Skype from his office in the Netherlands. Tell me about Primephonic. Oof. Yeah, sure. Uh, Primephonic basically is a streaming service specialized in classical music. Uh, and that often raises the question with people, why would the world need a streaming service specialized in classical music since classical music is also available on the major streaming services like Spotify or Apple Music, um, etc. The point is that we see that many classical music fans are not that satisfied, not that happy with what um, um, the big streaming services have on offer for classical uh, music fans. And they complain about a search that does not work well for classical music. They cannot find the works the recordings are looking for. They complain about recommendations they get that are very mainstream and not really broadening their horizon. They complain about um, album information, or actually lacking album information that they need. And they complain about audio quality, which they often feel is not good enough for um, classical music. Uh, and of course, different classical music fans um, have different, uh, um, let's say, weights to these four elements. But those are the, three, the four topics that many classical music fans are not happy about on uh, major streaming services. And I think the reason that these major streaming services can't offer an um, satisfying classical music um, uh, proposition is that they are designed for pop music. That's indeed you know, where the big masters are, where the big money is. And they do classical music on the side, but classical music has an inherently very different structure and needs than other music genres. And I think, I mean, Spotify was not designed for country or for dance either, but country and dance work well on Spotify because their structure and needs are very similar to pop music. But classical music is fundamentally different, and the way that Spotify's this world are designed uh, are not, doesn't work well for classical. How did Prime Phonics start? It's not an easy venture to start a new streaming service. Yeah, well, it's, I would say it started out of, I would say, concern and frustration. Frustration of a bunch of young classical music lovers that the, the genre they loved so much was not well available on the streaming service that we used and concern on the future of classical music. I mean, we're moving towards a streaming-only generation and a streaming-only world. I mean, I think the announcement yesterday on, on iTunes confirms only the, the trend that we are having. I think CD stores CD door are closing, radios are losing, channels are losing popularity, and also now download stores are closing. So we're moving to a streaming-only world. And at the same time, classical music is heavily underrepresented in the streaming revolution. So our concern is that if classical music does not fix its streaming problem, it will gradually become irrelevant and um, basically become uh, out of sight for a new generation who is basically streaming only. So it's the combination of concern and frustration that caused us to uh, and triggered us to to found Prime Phonic. And it started what 2017, right? 
Yeah, we started in 2017 with the idea. And basically, then we had to, to, of course, make a plan to get funding to develop the product. That took us about nine months. And then in September 2018, we went live in the UK, the US and the Netherlands, our home country. I think in those three countries now, we have been able to, let's say, fix some bugs in the product. We have learned how to market it. And now, June 15, we will start with our global rollout. Where did your funding come from? Was it private equity or, or was it from... It, it's a combination of, let's say, uh, what I would call a commercial venture capital fund, which just from a commercial perspective, believe in this opportunity, but also a classical music philanthropist who's just like us, very concerned on the future of classical music and who believes that we can contribute to a better future of classical music. One of the problems with classical music, and it's not the, the music itself, but it's the reaching the community. And we find classical orchestras everywhere having a problem with funding. Yeah. And it could only get worse if the music isn't available. So th this, in fact, helps that. And live music helps what you're doing as well. So I think it all goes hand in hand for a, a healthy synergistic genre. I mean, there is no, no such thing as one classical music community. I think we differentiate three types of classical music fans. The first is the really hardcore classical music fan who knows a lot, a lot about classical music, who basically says, I know exactly what I want to listen to. I cannot find it on Spotify. And if I can, it doesn't have the audio quality that I need. So for these people, we have developed a search that is much better than Spotify's and a much higher audio quality, up to 24-bit. Then there's a second part of the classical music community, which are basically people who know quite a bit about classical music, but also who know how much they don't know. And who would like a streaming service to make them recommendations on music that they don't know yet. But if you look at the Spotify's of this world, they have, the, they have algorithms for recommendations. So basically, if you look at pop music, pop music is about hits, about hits that come and go. So what Spotify tries to do is to recommend you to new hits that you don't know yet. Yeah. But in classical music, it's music that has been there for 100, 200 years. It's not about hits that come and go. It's about eternal beauties. So we need a fundamentally different recommendation algorithm that makes recommendation in classical music that's not that famous yet, but that people will appreciate. And then there is a third group, probably the largest group. People are like, yeah, classical music, I kind of like it, but I don't really know where to start, how to, how to begin. And for those people, we have a kind of beginner proposition, uh, for instance, with a playlist on all the essentials on opera or on orchestral music or on chamber music. But we've also made playlists with the, with the must-know Mozart works or Beethoven works, etc., or the most famous classical music work per instrument or per country. And in this way, let's say also for the, let's say, the lighter classical listeners, we help them to, let's say, gradually find their way into the, the intimidating world of classical music. Now, that being said, it's not the works themselves because they're represented well. It's the versions of them because there are so many. And differentiating between the versions could be daunting. So how do you go about doing that? Yeah, I think um, the, the, I think you, you come here to the essence of uh, why we exist. Um, and if you look at, uh, at pop music, you take Rihanna's new single, there is just one recording of it. Mm. If you take Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, there is literally 500 recordings of it from 500 different orchestras with 500 different conductors, each giving their take on how they believe Beethoven's Fifth Symphony should sound. And it sounds fundamentally different. So what we try to do is to provide classical music fans with an overview of all recordings of their favorite work. So not only can they choose their favorite, but they can also try and compare different recordings and gradually find out that it may even be more favorite recordings than the one that they thought to be their favorite. The metadata is very important in all of this. 
because that's how your search is actually defined. So that being said, where does the metadata come from? Is that supplied by the record label, orchestra, whatever? Any streaming services, we get the so-called DDEX data from the, the labels. And we have contracted about 2,000 classical music labels. And they all provide, uh, let's say, their, their, um, their, their, um, their albums um, and their catalogs to us, including the metadata that they have. The point is that the metadata that the labels provide don't allow for a perfect search. Uh, because many of these metadata were made in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s when there was no streaming. Well, the big streaming services like Apple and Spotify, they just use whatever they get and they try to make the best out of it, and then they fail. What we do is that we manually enrich those metadata. So we literally have 10 people in our office, musicologists, conservatory, alumni, who are enriching this metadata day by day um, to allow for much better search and much better recommendations. So they try to identify exactly What's the name of this work? What's the nickname? How could this composer be misspelled? What are the different movements here? What's the tone here? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just, um, uh, well, yeah, you could say a horrendous challenge. Um, they started with Bach, and now we have done it for 2,000 composers where we have mapped the entire over all the works, all the recordings, all the metadata fields. So now actually we get to composers that none of us actually has heard about because we're going down the list. We started with Bach, and now we are, uh, let's say, gradually getting to Let's say, I don't want to say obscure, but uh, let's say not, not so renowned composers. Well, of course, that's a big problem, the lack of metadata or incorrect metadata. Not so much for search, although that's a problem. It's for getting paid for the artists and, and songwriters to get paid. Because if it's incomplete, then the money can't find them. So I guess that brings me to my next question, which is, how does the royalty structure compare to Spotify or Apple Music or whatever? And yeah, I think this is an, another good example on how Spotify is designed for pop music, works well for pop music, but doesn't work well for classical. And so I've been mentioning Spotify and Apple Music now a few times. In themselves, they are good companies. They created a better future for pop music. They just failed to create a better future for classical music. Because what they do is basically, they put a part of the revenue into a royalty pool, and then they just count per artist how often has this artist been streamed. So maybe Rihanna has been streamed twice as much as Taylor Swift in 2018, and then Rihanna gets twice as many, many royalties from this royalty pool. And that sounds fair because both their songs are typically between three and four minutes. Nearly all pop songs are between three and four minutes. But classical music works can be 10, 20, 30 minutes. So if you listen one hour to Rihanna, you may have listened to 15, 17, 18 songs. So then she will be counted 15, 16, 18 times. But if you one hour to Beethoven symphonies, you've only listened to three movements in one hour. So basically meaning that Rihanna gets for one hour of streaming, maybe six times as much royalties as an orchestra that has been performing Beethoven. So basically classical music gets punished for the fact that its works are much longer, but it can't do anything about it. I mean, those works were composed 100, 200, 300 years ago. It's a given. So what Spotify should do is not pay based out on how often an artist has been streamed, but how long. But that is much more work to do. And I feel like, well, classical music is only a tiny bit of what we do. We're not going to overhaul our payout formula for this tiny genre. But the consequence is that classical music barely benefits at all from the streaming revolution, which is why we do not only count how often an artist is being streamed, but also we measure how long he has been streamed and therefore can pay out on a much fairer basis than Spotify and Apple Music can. I'm curious, how does that get paid out? Does the conductor get a royalty as well as the orchestra? 
Typically, yes, but it depends basically on uh, for every recording, there is a contract with the, with the, the label. And, in the, and the, so the label makes a recording. Typically, the label also pays for the recording. And then there is a royalty sharing mechanism which says how much should go to the orchestra, to the soloist, to the conductor, to the choir, etc. But that is all determined in a negotiation between the performers and uh, the labels, which is something that we as a streaming service consider as a given. So how about submissions then to Primephonic? Do you actively seek out catalog or are, are you being approached with it and, and how does someone submit? Yeah, well, I think the starting point is that we, we try to have all classical music ever recorded on our platform. The question, of course, is first, what is all classical music? And B, where can we find all classical music? So basically what we try to do is to contract every classical music label that's out there. We have identified 2,200 of them. 2,100 of those have already been contracted, and the remaining 100 were still chasing or negotiating to get on uh, our platform. So there's still maybe one or two percent missing, which we hope to um, to welcome on our on our service the rest of this year. Well, okay, that brings us to a question, then a fundamental question: How is classical music defined? What are the limits of what is classical? Yeah, that's a good point. As I think typically we tend to be lenient and tend to follow whatever labels consider um, classical music. It's only when we find mistakes, so sometimes we find hip-hop on there and then just the label made a mistake in the metadata, then we do take it off. So actually, lately we found Rihanna on our platform and we're like, hey, how did this happen? <laughs> and then we take it uh, off. But typically, if the label considers uh, film music classical music, then it's classical music for us. If André Rieu is classical music according to his label, then we also consider it classical because we prefer to have a bit too much on our platform than rather that people are missing something. How large is the catalog right now? It's about, out of my head, two million tracks. So we believe we're still missing like one or 200,000 from those 100 labels that we haven't contracted yet. How much classical music is generated every year? That's a good question. We think it's around 100 uh, releases per week, which would be about 5,000 albums per year or around 50,000 tracks per year. That's more or less our best guess. But we don't know what we don't know. So what we do know is about what I just told you. Yeah, yeah, okay. How many subscribers do you have? Well, the app has been downloaded 200,000 times now. And out of those, I think 50, 60,000 are registered users. And of course, out of those, uh, we're still converting into paying subscribers. But that really depends on our conversion from free to paid. Well, of course, it's early because it's only been a year since you've launched, right? Yeah, nine months. Yeah, okay. Well, that's pretty good for nine months. You have a high-end tier then, which is 24-bit, right? Yeah. So you just consider anything that's 24-bit as high resolution? Uh, not entirely. We consider 16-bit and 24-bit high resolution. Uh, but we, of course, we prefer 24-bit. The reality is that not all labels have all their content available in 24-bit. So whatever yeah. is being recorded in 24-bit can be streamed in 24-bit. But if it's only been recorded in 16-bit, then we have no option then to stream it in 16-bit. And then how is it streamed? What is the codec that's used to stream it? We use FLAC. FLAC, okay. How are you promoting the service? Um, well, through media would yeah. be one. Social media would be uh, second. Three, we, are, uh, we have established partnerships with, the, for instance, the New York Philharmonic, Chicago Symphony, uh, San Francisco Symphony. Um, also, now we're in discussions with the big orchestras in Europe. Uh, basically where we get their unique content, where we make special playlists with them together, and then also we get access to their, let's say, followership and fan base. 
Uh, and of course, we um, also have spread the word. So we have basically a member get member discounts so that people who subscribe to Prime Phone get a discount if they introduce more uh, subscribers. And of course, the more satisfied our subscribers are with our product, the more likely it is that they will also recommend it to their friends and family. I think it's an easily identifiable user base or potential user base. So that's the good part. You can target it, I think, fairly easily. And it sounds like you're going about it the right way. Okay, last question for you, Thomas. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or someone imparted to you? I'll give you two answers, if that's okay. Yeah. I think the first one is, if you, tend, if you tend to believe the counterparty is irrational or unlogical, you don't understand his rationale. So don't ever think another person doesn't get it or is irrational or unlogical. He just has a different logic or different rationale that you need to find out and understand. I think the second thing that I do every Friday afternoon, I ask myself, what did I fail at this week? And that's then on the top of my to-do list for the week thereafter. And I think if every week you ask yourself that question, every week you get a bit better. You can find out more about Prime Phonic at primephonic.com. That's spelled P-R-I-M-E-P-H-O-N-I-C, primephonic, all one word. Com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyowinnercircle.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.